When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Hello, it's Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with The Naked Scientists. And can it really be six months since Europe landed on a comet? We'll be catching up with Rosetta as Comet 67P, Churyumov Gerasimenko, gets even closer to the sun, increasing the chances of the Philae lander coming back to life. We'll be talking to some of the key members of the Rosetta team about what really happened during the landing. And I'll meet the man in charge of Philae's power. We're joined by science writer, space journalist, author and heavy rock lead guitarist Stuart Clark. Although technically we're joining him as he's finishing another book. So we've come to your home and we want to prove it that we're at your home because your guitar is right with you. <laughs> there we go. There's a, there's a chord that's guaranteed to um, uh, get every Rush fan in the country on their feet. There's probably a Venn diagram of Space Boffin listeners and Rush fans. They're probably pretty close, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Now, you've followed Rosetta, like me, really, every step of the, the way, for, but in your case, for the Guardian newspaper. Why do you think it has generated so much excitement, not just in the UK, but elsewhere? I think it, it's for a number of reasons. But the biggest reason is that it was just so simple to understand the outline of the mission. You know, first, would it wake up? Would it arrive at the comet? Would it land on a comet? You know, it's and it's just feels so ambitious, which it which it was. I mean, it was groundbreaking, historic, and it was just something. The comet was beautiful, and so it was just something that everyone could in, instinctively understand. It's also particularly when you go to the states, it appears to have raised the profile of Europe in space. On the day of landing, you had that wonderful NASA spokesman, which to me gave the best description ever when he said, how audacious. And he actually added a bit of va-va-voom to actually remind people that, yeah, look what you've done. Mm-hmm. I, think that's, I think that's absolutely true. I think Europe has not had the kind of razzmatazz about it that um, America and NASA so so naturally generate. And yet we do these extraordinary, amazing things. And why not? Let's celebrate how good we actually are. And we have to remind ourselves as well that, um, and I know ESA, the European Space Agency, are very keen to remind people that it's not over yet. This mission is it's halfway through it, really. <laughs> yes, I think, I think the, the, the greatest legacy of Rosetta... Um, will will arrive in the years to come as we fully analyse the data and we truly build up the picture of um, these comets, what they are, how they contributed to the early solar system and, and what they represent today. Thank 
4, 3, 2, 1, top. Allumage Vulcain. Décollage. It's been a bumpy, not to mention bouncy, ride. Since its launch in 2004, the spacecraft has pinged around the solar system like a snooker ball, round Mars once and the Earth three times, and then out as far as the orbit of Jupiter. It's coped with a 31-month hibernation and finally caught up with Comet 67P at 55,000 kilometres per hour. Then, on the 12th of November last year, flight controllers at the European Space Operations Centre, that's ESOC, at Darmstadt in Germany, released the Philae lander. But the landing didn't go entirely to plan. Six months on, for a BBC Future website special, I've been talking to Kuhn Gertz from the lander team, former mission manager Fred Janssen, spacecraft operations manager Andrea Akamazzo, and first, mission scientist Matt Taylor, who takes up the story on the eve of the landing. The day before landing, on the 11th, there were some issues with the lander, and that was obvious in the faces of people when you could see the live feed. Now, I think German TV at least were on 24-hour coverage there. Everyone could see the streaming of the event all the, uh, at that time. Ultimately, to enable the landing, we had a set of go and no-go scenarios. And we were approaching one, and we weren't sure whether we could go through it. And this was because we tried to prime one of the tanks on the lander. This was the active control system, basically, a gas thruster on the top of the lander. And that didn't seem that it was working. So we had to have a meeting in what they call the fishbowl. It's just next to the, the main control room. And I've got a picture from that where we have everyone in there, Andrea, Sylvain, Fred, who is you know, who's, who's the mission manager and the one in charge of everything. So in terms of stress, he had the weight of, of the world on him because he's the one that says yes or no to things. I wouldn't be good at my job if I got nervous about having to possibly make difficult calls. I had already made some very painful to some people calls by that time, but they needed to be made. So, yes, I felt some tension. But uh, it wasn't that much. Then again, I'll be very honest, the day or the evening before landing, there were a few things which went wrong and I was on my way to the hotel and I hardly had I entered the lobby or I could turn around and walk back to Izok. And on the way back, I called my wife and there were a few curses there. Was there a point where you thought, actually, this might not work? Was there an issue with, with the lander itself? It wasn't a matter of this won't work but more, we may not be able to do it now. And that, of course, knowing that there are hundreds of TV crews at ESOC, everybody ready, we are some uh, 17 hours away from when we should be landing, yeah, then the tension builds. We went to have a, a gin and tonic to try and calm down a little bit, and we went into one of the bars, uh, of the, well, there's a hotel bar, but that was full of journalists, so we thought, well, we can't really have a decompression chat here, so we had to go in the smoking lounge of, of, of the hotel. Funnily enough, there's all these journalists and nobody smoking, yeah, how the world has changed. And we went in the, the smoking room to have a drink and have a chat about what had happened, we were there because, you know, basically we'd made the agreement had been made as to what the process was. Everything gets uplinked, and then you just wait to see if the, what the information comes back in about four hours' time. Fred and I said, look, let's go to bed. Text me when you hear anything. And I remember at 3 o'clock in the morning, you get the ping, we go. And then I went into ESOC and just sat in the main control room just watching events unfurl, as it were. 
we took an image. It was exactly planned 50 seconds after the release, and it worked perfectly well. When I saw the images that Philae had really left, and when, of course, on the spacecraft we saw the information that the cable was detached, etc., yeah, that was a relief. But for me, the, the biggest tension moment was the landing itself. I had a lot of pressure to announce the landing, definitely. So, but I made it very clear. It's very difficult first to detect exactly when it has landed because there's no indication of landing. We will see something happening. Second, we are not extremely familiar with the lander itself. We have a lander control center. They are more familiar, but they were receiving telemetry much after, uh, much later than, than what we did. And the third thing is also uh, you don't know what, what is the lander doing when it lands. I mean, if it starts tumbling, whether it's anchored or not, it takes a long time to resolve these things. So when it came to the point where we thought it had landing or at least touched down because we saw something changing and was exactly at the expected time, then I said, I believe we have landed. <laughs> and everybody was laughing. And there's a picture of the four, I think four of you, it's difficult to tell in that control, but I think four of you sort of gathered around a screen, sort of looking at the, the numbers. Is that what you sort of made a decision that you, that you said, right, it's my call, I'm going to announce that it's landed? Well, we started, uh, if you want, jumping around or enjoying when we saw that something, the, the radio link to the, between the lander and Rosetta was very stable throughout the descent. And exactly at the time we had predicted the landing, then something changed. This link was briefly interrupted and resumed. Then we said, this is the landing, is the landing, it's no doubt. I think we unambiguously identified the fact that we touched the surface of the comet. We definitely confirmed that the lander is on the surface, and I leave it to Stefan. I think it's up to him to judge how it's going now on the lander. Okay, so we are there, and Phila is talking to us. Uh, first things he told us was that the harpoons have been fired, rewound, and the landing gear um, has been moved inside, so we are sitting on the surface. Phila is talking to us. More data to come. And, and to if you compare the situation at ESOC for, for ESA's mission control to the lander mission control in Cologne, they're very different um, parallel stories. My name is Kuhn Hürz, and I'm the Rosetta Lander technical manager. Here in Cologne, we were also looking at this information, and we had the anchor experts sitting next to us. And they immediately were saying between themselves, saying, hmm, 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 doesn't, yeah, something happened, but it doesn't look exactly what we expected. So this, when you hear this, and they say behind you, yeah, you're not going to jump up immediately. So you're waiting on, on what they're saying. And what we also saw, and this was let's say, the most concerning but also the most unambiguous confirmation that we were not standing on the comet is that we still saw this rotation. So we saw that the solar panels, the rotation changed, it was a bit different, but it was still rotating. And with every, let's say, minute passing, we saw that the rotation was not decaying. So this meant we were still somewhere in free space. This moment struck us. I mean, okay, we touched down, we got confirmation that the anchors were not shot, and we see rotation. And then, uh, of course, many things, many people started to discuss and come with theories, and, and there was nothing that we could do. Were you concerned that it wouldn't come back down, that it could just fly off into space? What nobody could tell at the moment is how high, with which force, and if this force was sufficient to put Philly back into an escape trajectory, i.e. nobody could tell us that two hours later we would be landing again, and there was nothing that we could do. And when did you next realise it had landed again? Because this is the, the second landing. 
At the moment, we only saw the, let's say, the first touchdown and the final landing. Everything, all the results that were then derived, that we know now that we had also, let's say, uh, intermediate touchdowns, we didn't, did not immediately see them. Fortunately enough, we still had communication between Rosetta and Philly. And at some point, we saw that this rotation immediately stopped. So uh, we saw continuously rotating, rotation, rotation, and suddenly everything was stable. And this, of course, could only mean that we touched something. And the only thing there uh, would be the comet. And we still had communication. So this was a very, let's say, um, a moment with a lot of relief that, okay, you're, you know, this means we're standing on the comet. We're still communicating. Perfect. <laughs> Kuhn Gertz, who's in charge of power on the Philae lander. Former mission manager Fred Janssen, spacecraft operations manager Andrea Akamatso, and mission scientist Matt Taylor. I think it is quite interesting to hear them, them all together, isn't it? You get this sort of perspective across. It, it certainly is because it plays differently to how it was a at our end uh, how what was it like because you were with the journalists in the in the press room did you have any idea that any of this was taking place yeah I think it became quite obvious to me that things hadn't gone completely according to plan uh, because we were in the press room we were removed from all those wild celebrations that were going on up in the VIP area and which got so much coverage and there was still this sense that the, the lander control team were not celebrating. Uh, and, and, and things started to seem a little bit confused. So there was, there was, it was clear that, that, that something had gone wrong. It had been quite clear that something had gone wrong much earlier in the day on those overnight go-no-go when the the filet go um, was delayed by at least an hour. Were you aware of what had actually happened or did that sort of leak out? Because I was aware of what happened with the, the lander itself in the yeah, preparations well, it wasn't, overnight. It wasn't fully working. Yeah. Yes, because uh, Fred Janssen and Matt Taylor briefed us um, very, very early in the morning, just on a almost like a one-on-one. I mean, they were so open and honest that you really felt part of the process. I think that is one of the the great things about this actually there's been no attempt this is there's you know the confusion there is genuine confusion it was genuine confusion at the time that at ESOC they thought it's landed big celebration and actually in Cologne things Mm. were going slightly differently there was no attempt to mislead anyone even though there was probably pressure to do that I I think everyone was genuine and authentic and I I truly got that that feeling so even after uh, uh even after the official briefings, they wouldn't all just walk away. They'd then come and talk to you one-on-one, and you, I, I felt a, a huge sense of being part of it. I felt there was nothing being covered up. If there, if there was parts of the story that weren't um, quite fitting together, it was because there was genuine confusion. One of the things that was quite obvious, as you said, was the, the fact that you have several screens, you have several images, and I was in with the, the team doing the live broadcast, and at the time we were looking at, like you say, the sort of woohoo, whoops and delight in one room, and then in the other room it was almost as if when we were saying, what's going on, why aren't they reacting? And at first we thought they didn't have the, the feed, that they'd missed somehow 
the 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 signal or that the, that they hadn't seen the control room so they were unaware so that was our first thought and other people thought it's like well what's going on why because they were just sat there they weren't celebrating then we thought okay if they're not doing that and they have got it something and like you say you then think okay they've detected something that we haven't and then afterwards we were getting scientists coming up to us saying no, they, they, it's still, it's still in flight. It, it's, it's still there. It, 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 it's landed, but it's no longer there. And as that lovely sort of step by step sort of trace of what went on, then it all makes sense in terms of the readings that they, they were getting. But it was odd, wasn't it, to see them yes. all sat there like mannequin dummies. Just, and, and you just thought, are they being completely, totally? massively professional and just getting on with the job <laughs> but actually there were no there were no smiles no. and so suddenly you start realizing that something's not right and then all the, the press briefings the official briefings kept being put back later yes. and later and later because they were finding out Absolutely. what was going on because we had scientists running in and out of where we were saying we don't know yet yes. we're still trying to work it out <laughs> yeah abssolutely right and it just it it gave us in a strange way it gave gave the most extraordinary sense of drama yeah. to the whole thing and and that i think is going back to that original question is one of the other reasons why this captured people's attention because it is dramatic one thing that congerts told me we heard about the, the thruster not working which was was public knowledge as you say he says actually that saved the mission so they've worked out since that had that thruster worked it would have pushed the fillet lander down into the surface harpoons didn't fire actually would have effectively loaded it like a spring and it would have bounced out would have reached escape velocity and wouldn't have gone back to the comet so actually the two failures were fine if that thruster had worked and the harpoons hadn't worked, then it would have gone off into space. I know, this, this, this what-if game was something that we were playing all day because the press centre had opened at 6am and knowing that there'd been a problem with Philae overnight because I'd been, I'd been watching it overnight from the hotel, I was straight in at 6 to try and find out what the, the problem was and that's when we were told that the thrusters weren't... Um, there's no pressure in the lines. Uh, and so the harpoons should fire, but then there's the recoil that might happen there and all the rest of it. So we were on tenterhooks. We knew it wasn't a done deal uh, that this would happen. Uh, and I've come to the opinion, actually, that um, it doesn't now matter how Philae got to the surface and stayed on the surface. All that matters is that it did. And in fact, as a result of the multiple touchdowns, which I thought Fred Janssen dealt with very well by turning it into an advantage. Actually, in terms of the science, it has been an advantage because each down it each time it touched down, the instruments were still taking data. So, for example, with the magnetic field measurements of the comet, that was actually helped by the fact that they now have measurements from four different points mm. and similarly with other aspects of it so in terms of the science it has actually been an unexpected boon to yes. have data from four different points yes ian wright from the open university was saying something very similar that um, his instrument was open all that time and has collected an extraordinary amount of data from this journey across the comet 
The interesting thing is, of course, that there were discussions originally about whether, um, I mean, many years ago, whether this mission should be a comet hopper. <laughs> so, and it was decided that it was just too difficult to try and hop across a comet. So let's just try and make one that would land in a single place. So everyone won, really. That's great. I love the thought of a of a hopper, an unintentional hopper actually happens. But then, of course... The the big question now is, will Philae wake up? It, it it sort of doesn't have to in a way because it's completed its primary science mission. It did sent back 57 hours worth of data. The difficulty being it's slightly in shadow, so it's not going to get... In fact, it's only a fraction of like a, an hour and a half, I believe, of sunlight it's likely to get as opposed to pretty much a whole day's worth. Do you think it's important for it to wake up? I know the drama will continue and everyone will be delighted, but is there much more to gain? If Philae doesn't wake up, the science is exceptional already. If if it does wake up... Uh, and again, I'm going to rely on, on, on Ian Wright for this. And he said to me that they've got their data and they've got data that they, you know, that they were hoping for. So now they can analyse that and they can build hypotheses. In the usual run of things, they would then have to wait two decades or so for another mission to go to a comet and test their hypotheses. If Philae wakes up, they can do it this year. So... If Philae wakes up, it's just bonus science and it's shortcutting taking another mission. That's great, isn't it? So another unintentionally positive side effect of a unexpected bounce landing. Yes, absolutely. So in the normal run of things, Philae was, Philae's mission would now be completely over. It would have overheated by now. The fact that it's in this crevasse or wherever it is and mostly in the shadow and in the cold is protecting it. And as it goes closer towards the um, sun and the activity rises, and if it does wake up, that extra activity will only, I think, allow its instruments to take better data. And we should remind people, actually, that this, the maximum activity and the closest it will be to the sun is August. That's, that's absolutely right. Well, Philae technical manager Kuhn Gertz from the German space agency DLR is definitely the uh, the man who is probably closest to letting us know whether Philae will wake up or not. He's responsible for power systems on the lander. And Richard, you met him, didn't you, at the control room in Cologne? We're overlooking the lander room here. It's around the size, I suppose, of a, of a tennis court. Big glass wall on this side so we can see in. And the tables are arranged not like the sort of NASA control room in, in rows. They're arranged in a, in a circle. And you've got the various posts around there. There's ops, there's power, there's CMD. I'm not sure what CMD Commanding. is. Commanding, OK. Uh, thermal, all those are, are around in, in a circle. And then on the far wall, screens with uh, projected... Uh, graph statistics and it says on the top right hand corner time to event tell me what that is first of all and we'll talk about the rest of the room the time to event is the time uh, until rosetta loses communication with earth so right now rosetta is communicating with earth and that's green is that why that's green exactly correct and what's going on in the room? There's only one person in here, uh, not surprisingly right now. <laughs> At the moment, of course, it's very quiet because Philly is in hibernation. We're just doing some standard uh, system checks. We have, unfortunately, no communication with Philly, so there's nothing, let's say, for us to do actively here in the control room. 
over the weekend we were listening for possible communication with file so what colleagues are doing are simply having a look if the the system part on rosetta was operating nominally and the communication with file is via rosetta correct so we rely on rosetta to establish communication between uh, rosetta and file rf communication and of course rely on isa to send our commands to rosetta if you always got someone in here just in case there there comes a signal not always because uh, we are listening for signals only at dedicated time intervals also then for example over the weekend we were not uh, staffing the control room because we would be informed by our colleagues at isa they have permanent uh, staffing and but we are on call so in case we would get a signal on sunday afternoon then we all quickly come in and what are the chances do you think i mean having analyzed the the data coming back from rosetta what and the position now you think where the lander might be for example over the weekend we had very good possibilities in terms of geometry because file and rosetta have to look at each other each other in a specific geometry for the communication to be able to be established and the geometry so the communication slots were relatively long in duration 2 to 3 hours of course this has to occur also during the daylight period where file has landed otherwise file is shut down we did not receive any signal because the tendency is, or our belief is, that it's still relatively cold where Philly has landed. So Philly has to reach at least minus 45 degrees Celsius. At the moment, it's probably a bit too early still. So if we imagine it there, is it effectively like a, a laptop with a flat battery and it, it needs charging up from its from its solar cells? Is that, is that the, the bottom line, really? Exactly, exactly. And for this charging uh, or even booting, so switching on, Philly can also switch on without having charged its batteries, so running exclusively on solar power, but it needs to reach this minimum temperature, otherwise we might damage some of our electronics. So there's a hardware mechanism which is preventing uh, switch on in case the temperature is too low. And judging from its position, I mean, all, all we can see really are those final images. Of, you can see one leg. It looks like it's on its side in something of a gully. What are the chances of getting sunlight into that area? There is sunlight. Uh, this we also saw immediately following the landing during a few days. Unfortunately, the sunlight isn't as uh, long in duration as we would have hoped. So there we are calculating with two to three hours of good illumination. Our big advantage is that the comet is getting closer and closer to the sun. So the intensity is much higher uh, with respect to the intensity in November. So for this short duration, we have a good chance in terms of power that Philly will be able to boot. And so hope is, is not lost. You're looking ahead to the next, what, few months, maybe J- July, August, that sort of time. Exactly. Perihelion, so the closest sun to comet distance, is mid-August. So up to mid-August, every day our chances are increasing. So in this respect, it looks positive for the lander. Kuhn Gertz from the Philae lander team. I'm quite surprised how optimistic he is, actually, because there's been a general play down that it won't wake up. I mean, he's the guy in charge of the power. Yeah, and he's an engineer. So, you know, if anyone's, if, if, if you're going to uh, believe optimism from anyone, believe it from an engineer. Yeah. I have to say, that was recorded end of April. So that's the sort of time scale we're talking about. Um, but yeah, he does seem to think oh, it's getting closer and closer and closer. And of course, it doesn't, it could happen after it's got to its closest point to the sun as well. 
Yeah, so we would imagine that the main illumination is going to come around perihelion time. So that's when, you know, the best chances of it in the run up to that and before we keep our fingers crossed. This is the Space Boffins podcast with Sue Nelson, Richard Hollingham and our guest Stuart Clark, brought to you in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Do get in touch on Twitter or Facebook, and that's where you'll find interesting comments from Robin Haig on the somewhat secretive Blue Origins rocket project, space hygiene tips from ESA astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti, and a picture of a Beagle 2 pen, which still works. Although, as I pointed out on Facebook, it's really difficult to get the lid off. Um, I also want to mention Space Boffins listener David Milligan. He's the Gaia spacecraft operations manager we'll hear from him on the space boffins podcast maybe next month Uh, i met him at esoc in germany uh, the other week and he found us via the naked astronomy podcast feed where you'll now find us and uh, i think a lot of people have found us that way and we'll have more news for astronomy fans in next month's podcast thank you very much to our guest science writer journalist novelist uh, and musician stuart clark The Space Boffins podcast is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. Do follow us and contact us on Facebook and Twitter. And thanks for listening.